It's good to be with everyone this morning, and welcome to Wellspring. If you're new, visit and checking us out. If you're here for the first time, it's good to be with you. My name is Tony. I have the privilege of being on staff here. Now, if you're a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, uh, Miss Trish and Miss Jeannie are over there. Feel free to, if you're a kid, it's going to be awesome. If you're not, I, it's hard to compete with how awesome it's going to be over there, but I'll do my best. So we've been in the Old Testament. We've been sort of slowly working our way through Genesis, and now we're in Exodus. Last week, we hit the 10th plague, right? The 10th plague, which then sort of is the bridge, the pivot for the Hebrew people being released from slavery, right? It's this moment after almost 14 chapters where they start to actually walk out of Egypt. It's pretty interesting, though. If you actually look at the text, what you'll realize is that God actually brings the Hebrew people on the longer route versus the shortcut. Did you know that? This is Exodus 13, 17 to 18. When Pharaoh let the people, or when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Let's just stop here just for one second. Who here has felt like they've ever been on the long way? Yeah, you feel like, God, you know, like, pretty simple. God of the universe. Like, like Thanos, right? Snap your fingers. Change whatever's going in my life, going on in my life. Just do it, God. And he's like, no, no, no. I lop for the long way. I especially find this with issues of character. It's like, yeah, my pride or my greed or my insecurity, whatever, like whatever it is. You're like, God, just do the shortcut. He's like, no, 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 I, I prefer the long way. What's interesting is that in Exodus 13, the longer route will actually quickly result in a much greater test of the Israelites' faith. In a matter of days, they will actually be blocked by the Red Sea with nowhere to go, with the Egyptian army literally approaching. I want to show you just kind of a map. This is a map of the, can we do the other one? This is the short route. So the short route goes north. Right? That's the way of the Philistines, but that way likely leads to a conflict. The long route actually goes kind of like south. This would have been a similar route that Moses would have taken to Midian. That little cluster of red dots on the far right, that's likely where Sinai is. So imagine they're kind of going down this way and then they hit the Gulf of Arabia or the Red Sea. Now they know this is the right way to go because immediately upon leaving Egypt, they are led by a cloud and fire in the sky. Like imagine that, you wake up the next day, Moses is like, all right guys, we're leaving. Just so you know, follow the cloud in the day and the fire at night. And they're like, whoa. This is what the text says. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 
right? They know the short route versus the long route because they're following fire in the cloud. And if you zoom out a bit, what you see is there's this sort of part in the literary development of the book of Exodus. You can see the intensity of God's presence is actually increasing. In chapter 3, God appears in a burning bush. He's fire, right? You get to chapter 13 and 14, now he's literally fire in the sky, right? Cloud and fire. And then in a few chapters on Mount Sinai, his presence will be so intense that it'll actually be too much for the people to bear. This is Exodus 20:18. When the, all of the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, this is on Sinai, and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and troubled. They stood far off. Right? So you have this sort of escalating intensity of God's presence from the burning bush to the cloud and fire at night, right, to then Mount Sinai. So far, though, we're still in chapter 13. The Hebrew slaves are just leaving Egypt. They're starting their three-day backpacking trip, right, into the wilderness. And as we start into chapter 14, actually, the, the scene shifts back to Egypt now. See, Pharaoh had assumed that the Hebrew people, right, their initial request was, hey, we just want a three-day camping trip, backpacking trip, whatever, in the wilderness. We want to worship God. And he's like, okay, 10 plagues. He grants them their three days off. After three days, right, one of the aides in the palace comes in kind of freaking out. You know, your, your excellency, your greatness, or whatever his title is, you know, the slaves have fled. And then in Exodus 14, 6, Pharaoh gets his army. He gets 600 chariots. These are like the Egyptian special forces of the ancient world. These are like the kind of people that like everyone is terrified of. So these Egyptian chariots, they would uh, attack an enemy in a, like a triangle formation. One in the front and then two behind. And they had like knives and sharp stuff coming off their wheels. And what they would do is there would be an infantry or an army just gathered. They would literally just plow over them. Everyone is terrified of these guys. And Pharaoh's like, all right, round them up. Let's go to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's getting his chariots ready. Now, imagine it, right? You're the Hebrew people. You've just walked through a desert. This is not, you know, cool. This is not PG. This is hot. Now you arrive at a body of water. What do you do? I mean, seriously, what do you do? Me? I jump in. Right? If there's a family, guaranteed kids are swimming in the water. People are splashing, they're having fun, and then it's like the movie Jaws. Who, who has seen the movie Jaws? All the Gen Zers are like, what movie? You know? I think it was made in like the early 80s. I can't remember at this point, but, right? So Jaws basically starts with people playing on a beach, and then you hear the music, like, you know, and then some person screams, and then everyone runs out of the water. Like, now this is, imagine, they've walked through the desert, they're at the water, they're playing, someone looks back, and they see the chariots coming. And then people start to scream. The chariots are coming in triangle formation, and you are here trapped 
And the text tells us the Hebrews are afraid. Right? What do they do when they're afraid? What most of us do, right? They blame whoever brought them there. That's the first thing they say. Right? Exodus 14, 11 and 12. It is because, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? Like seriously, they know how to throw down right now, right? <laughs> what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Moses, you're playing in the water. You look back and the chariots are coming. What would you do? I'd probably blame Moses if I'm honest. What's interesting though, kind of startling, is how quickly though the Hebrew people romanticize slavery in Egypt. I mean, how quick, right? Like literally 10 plagues. The first time in 400 years that they're actually able to like have a three-day backpacking trip in the wilderness. How quickly they forget. Which I think begs the question, yeah, sure, they're no longer bossed around by Pharaoh in Egypt, but are they really free? Maybe you can relate to this in your life, right? You, you finally get out from under that horrible boss and that toxic work culture. You get out of that bad relationship or whatever, and then what happens, right? The same thing starts happening in the new environment, in the new relationship. Why? Because your external circumstances changed, but you didn't actually change. For me, I noticed this pattern for me early on in my work life. I remember the first job I had, I thought, it's all my boss. What's his problem? Like, get over yourself, dude, you know? Then three jobs later, I'm like, huh, what's the common denominator here? Right, I start to see that there's something going on in me. You see, I grew up in a family environment where there was this one family member who ruled with this really strong hand. And I vowed early on, I would never be put in a vulnerable position like that again. I would never give someone power like that over me again. And so every time I got into this relationship with a boss, I was started off deeply suspicious. I wasn't going to be vulnerable again. Which inevitably, as you might imagine, led to conflict. So while Jesus had set me free in college, yes, hallelujah, amen. I still was in the process of actually becoming free. In practice, though, I was ruled by fear. And if I'm honest, it was way easier for me to blame my boss than it was for me to take responsibility for my own issues, to face my own fear, to take seriously my own inappropriate reactions. I think we'll see something similar, actually, with the Hebrew people. 
yeah, they're set free externally from slavery. But internally in the story today, and as they wander in the wilderness, what we're going to see is they will continue to romanticize Egypt and blame Moses. Showing that while they have left Egypt in a physical way, they still are in the process of becoming actually free people who serve and worship Yahweh. A people who are not still just enslaved to Pharaoh. And here in chapter 14, while the Hebrew people forget the mighty acts of God, the promises to Abraham, in this moment, there's one person among them who doesn't, who remembers. Moses, he's in the midst of all this fear and panic of the Hebrew people. He stands up and says this, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Now, when we take this verse out of context, maybe you have read it in a devotional or some other place. Like you imagine Moses with a smile and maybe a hand on a struggling person's shoulder saying, you know, God will fight for you. You only need to be silent. And everyone smiles and is like, oh, Moses, you're so nice. But in context, the people are freaking out. There literally are chariots charging with knives and stuff poking out. Moses doesn't have a sound system so he can speak gently. He's literally yelling. And in Hebrew, these last, this last line where he says this, right, you only need to be silent, is actually two words in Hebrew. And I think it's more accurately translated something like, be quiet. Right, this is not actually a word of comfort. This is a word from a leader taking charge of a panicking people and challenging them in their moment of fear and panic. Stop. God tells Moses, lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, if you've been with us in Genesis, you're starting to see maybe an echo back to Genesis 1. Right on the third day, God divides the dry land and the sea in order to make a space suitable for human habitation. Right, and that's happening again here, right? The waters are dividing so the people can walk through so they can get to where? The promised land. A place that is suitable for the habitation of God's people. Right, in Genesis 1 and in Exodus 14, the water is the obstacle that needs to be removed so that human beings can enjoy the gift of the land that God is going to give. It's worth noticing too, though, that uh, the, the text is like really vague about who's doing the heavy lifting in this moment, God or Moses. I love this. This is verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, right? So Moses is stretching out the hand. His hand is moving. And simultaneously, the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Moses stretches out his hand, but God is the one moving the water. There's sort of this partnership going on. It's clear, right, that although Moses moves the water, God is doing something through 
him. And simultaneously, it's really interesting in this text what's happening. The presence of the cloud now starts to go into the dry land in front of them. And then behind them, the cloud walls them in and sort of creates darkness on the army. So literally in this moment, they are surrounded by the presence of God. Let me try to imagine this. In Exodus 12, 37, it says there are at least 600,000 adult males that are sort of released, right? Now, that's not including women, kids, or foreigners that join. Let's just work with 600,000 for a second, just so you can get it in your head. Who here has been to like a football game or a large game played in a massive stadium somewhere? Most of us? Let's just imagine there's 50,000 people in that stadium. Like imagine, remember like looking out in the stadium and all of those people? Now take all those people and line them up like along a body of water, let's say at the bay. Now you'd have to multiply that number of people that you have in your imagining by 12 just to even get the smallest possible number of people down at the water. Like think of how massive that is. This massive, massive collection of people, right? And this massive collection of people is playing in the water. Someone looks back, you have the jaws seen, they start screaming and panicking. Moses is like, stop! He puts out his hand, the water starts to part. In order for this group of people to make it through the water, we're talking like the water is parting for at least probably a mile or two. This isn't like we're trying to like, you know, squeegee through. <laughs> like we're talking a mile or two of water parting. And then the cloud starts moving into this area of dry land with walls of water on the sides. You start seeing people starting to walk out between the walls of water. Right, you're surrounded by God's presence. As I sort of imagine it, right, imagine walking into that ground. It's probably muddy. I sort of imagine families going and kids are like losing sandals. Right, it's like, Bloop, oh, you know, keep going, you know, leave the sandal behind. And this is important because the Egyptians, as they start to pursue the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they're going through the water, their chariot wheels, like the children's shoes, get stuck in the mud. The symbol of Egyptian power and dominance is now stuck in the Red Sea mud. The charging chariots with their sharp weapons, right, are stuck in triangle formation, trying to mow down the people thereafter. I remember living in Kenya, and when it, we lived out in this pretty remote area, and there was, uh, none of the roads were paved. And so whenever you were driving a car or a van or something on these roads, and it was rainy season, they would often get stuck. And there was just like, a pattern. What you do is you jump out of the car, someone would have a board, another person, and they would put the board under the back tires and push them under, and then everyone else would be pushing on the van, and it would like move three feet, and then you'd fall on your face, and you'd get up and like try and get it going. I imagine that, right? Pharaoh's in his chariot. He's like, 
get the boards under my wheels, right? And then you have all these like special forces guys just trying to get the chariots moving. And it's this picture of utter impotence. In this moment, the most famous and terrifying army in the world is stuck in the mud. It says in verse 24 that they start to panic. This immense army so powerfully stuck in the muck and afraid and panicking. There's walls of water on either side of them. Moses stretches out his hand again and the waters return and they wash the entire Egyptian army into the sea. And the text tells us, right, that Israel watched the powerful chariots swept into the sea. And in verse 31, it says this, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord, in his servant Moses. Right? You have this profound reversal, right? A few moments ago, they were the ones terrified by the Egyptian army. Now, the Egyptians are in panic, swept into the sea, and now who are they afraid of? The power of God. The word fear and awe are very similar, right? So it's this feeling of panic before the chariots and then awe before the power and might of God. I just wonder, you're there, what do you do in that moment? How do you respond? The text tells us in Exodus 15:1, then Moses and the Israelites sang. It's interesting, they don't focus on the larger story. They don't focus on you took us from slavery to freedom. Specifically, they sing about how God just destroyed the Egyptian army. Exodus 15:1, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And as we read the song, what happens is in verses 1 through 12, you have this picture of God's victory over the symbol of their oppression through the destruction of the chariots and the Egyptian army. And then in verse 13, there's this shift in this song they're singing. Verse 13 reads this way. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode or dwelling. Right? And you have this sort of recognition, God, even though you took the long way, I wanted the short way, you took the long way, you have led through your steadfast love and your strength. Even though I wanted to just play in the water and we had this moment of panic, God, you led in your steadfast love and your strength. God, even though we are still in the process of becoming, and yeah, we're still kind of enslaved by Pharaoh internally, God, you have led us by your steadfast love and your strength. And there's also a window into why. Like, what's the purpose of all of this long journey? Right? You guided them by your strength to where? Your holy abode to your house, your dwelling, your presence. 
And this is reinforced then in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. In a couple chapters, where is that? Mount Sinai. Where his presence, again, will shine forth with even greater intensity. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode for your presence, for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Right? So the purpose of the long route, the purpose of taking the Hebrew people out of Egypt, into the wilderness, across the Red Sea, why? So they can be with God. So they can be in His presence. Right? And this is actually set from the very beginning of Exodus. You remember the first thing that Moses asked Pharaoh other than three-day vacation? Let my people go, is what God says, so that they may serve and worship me, right? Serve and worship are the same word in Hebrew, that they might worship me, right? The purpose from the very beginning wasn't so they could just have a three-day vacation and do whatever they wanted. That was never the purpose of the Exodus, The purpose was that they could be set free from the yoke of slavery with Pharaoh so that they could then serve and worship God. And in a few chapters, right, God on Mount Sinai will actually show up in this powerful way. And he'll actually give them directions, instructions, commands on how to serve and worship him so that they can be a worship-filled people that are attuned to the presence of God. There's this also recognition baked into this story that the Hebrew people haven't arrived yet. Like they still haven't made it to Sinai. They still haven't gotten the directions. They are still in process. Yeah, they're externally free, but they're not really free. Their heart is not actually aligned yet with Yahweh, with his kingdom. Right? This is why the longer route is so important. God wants his steadfast love to guide his people. He wants them to recognize his love and strength. And sometimes the longer route is necessary. The longer route in this story leads to what? Worship. The people look back and they see, God, you have been so loving and so faithful. Your strength has carried us. Shortcuts often don't lead worship. All right, so what do we do with this? Right, this is the story. It lands us here in the 21st century on the peninsula in the everyday life of God's people. Like, what translates here? I think a lot, actually. I think we can relate to the longer journey. That sometimes we wish God would take the shortcut. Like, seriously, God? Shortcut, please sign me up. You know, we want it to be more instantaneous. I think we relate to the disappointing reality, right, that our character does not change as fast as our expectations. I think we relate to the presence of fear on the journey. That's not all just playing in the water. Sometimes there's moments when we're afraid. And I think we can relate to the goal of the journey being the presence of God worship of God. That right both on this journey and a result of this journey, the hope is that we come, we become a people that serve and worship Yahweh as our Lord. 
and not simply stay enslaved to Pharaoh or other things in our life. You know, I was trying to think of like a few examples from my life where I've sort of like struggled with this process. Two stories came to mind. The first was, you know, I grew up kind of equating power and money. That if you have enough money, you're, you can be powerful. You don't have to be vulnerable. I remember being in college, and there was one person in my life who helped me pay for my college, and I was thinking about doing the Peace Corps after school, and this person said to me, you are my investment. I expect a return on my investment. And there was this veiled threat under the surface of, if you don't do what I say, you might not be attending college anymore. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, I will never be in a position where someone has power like this over them, especially when it comes to money. That if I can just save as much money as I can, I will never have to be vulnerable like this again. And then counter the person of Jesus, and he says to me, hey, Tony, my people are generous. You know, why don't you try it? And I was like, hard pass. Because the truth is, even though I had encountered the person of Jesus, I was still imprisoned. I was enslaved to my fear of not having enough. Right, Jesus wanted to set me free. He's like, Tony, I want more for you. But for me, all it felt was deeply threatening. Wait, you're going to take away my safety net? Why would I ever do that? The truth is, it actually took me years to even start in this process. I actually remember literally the first time I ever shared money. If you're like kind of greedy like me, you'll, you'll sort of relate to this. I literally remember a few friends and I, we would go every Tuesday night to get dollar pizza. Dollar pizza at Pleasure Point uh, in Santa Cruz. And I literally remember thinking, all right, I'm going to treat two of my friends to $2 slices each. A total of $4. And I literally remember paying for it and I couldn't even enjoy one bite of the one slice I got. I was like, oh, you know, panicking internally. True story. The point is this, right? I was in the process of becoming more aligned with Jesus. I was in the process of becoming more free. God wanted to break the power of fear that I had so that I could experience his grace. You fast forward a little bit today, I've gotten to the place where I actually can, like, with some joy, give my money away and actually have it be a part of worship. And the best part about it is, right, like, I don't have to live with this sense of fear. Because as I've sort of leaned into this journey, I've actually experienced a ton of freedom In the sense that God will be my provider. That my bank account in the end is not the one that provides for me, right? It is God. And in that, I actually can worship Him. 
another story. I grew up thinking that if you mess up or do something wrong, like, what do you do? Hide it, obviously. Don't tell anyone. Why would you ever tell someone when you totally messed up? Like, so intuitive. Like, never tell anyone, hide, pretend, keep secrets. After meeting Jesus, he encouraged me to share my struggles. And I was like, what? Who does that? Like, that makes no sense. But again, the truth was, I was enslaved to a fear of rejection. And the fruit of that is I always felt lonely. Because when you can't let people into what's really going on, then no one ever really knows you. And you walk around with this internal sense of being alone. Jesus didn't want that for me. He wanted me to be more free. I remember the first time he sort of challenged me to like meet with a group of guys. This group of guys were meeting and they were just being honest and sharing what was going on and praying for their, praying for each other. And I was like, fine, you know, I'll go. But the truth is at that point, I'd never really been friends with a Christian. Like I had been to church, I had been to worship services, but I'd never really been friends with a Christian. I literally remember getting into this group of guys and I think I was just trying to push them away. Like, I was just trying to make sure that they would never invite me back. Not like it consciously, like I didn't think like this is the script, but I think this is just what I did. And I literally remember saying to them, truth is, guys, like I've never been friends with a Christian. I'm not sure this is really going to work out. <laughs> Could you imagine someone saying that? Like, hi, my name's Tony, you know? <laughs> and the truth was, even then, they were kind to me. And I ended up staying with this group. Why they invited me back, you know, the mercy and grace of Jesus. And I started to experience acceptance that I had never experienced before. And then what happened is I started to experience the acceptance of God as I was experiencing the acceptance of people. And then Jesus felt more present. And then when I came to worship, I just overflowed in this sense of worship because I was getting what I wanted so much was just to be accepted by people. Accepted by God. But Jesus had to break the power of fear in my life. Right? The fear that I would be abandoned and I needed to take care of myself or else with money. The fear that I'd be rejected by people. And Jesus was like, Tony, I want you to be more free. You're trapped. But I guess I just wonder, as I share these stories from my life, I guess I, just, I, guess I wonder what pops up for you as you reflect on your story, what you bring into the room today, where are you at in your journey of becoming? Of becoming increasingly free in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of his people. But if Jesus was to shine a spotlight onto one area of your life, 
where he wants you to be more free? What area would that be? Right, the Hebrew people, they're externally free. They're out of Egypt, baby, but they are still enslaved to Pharaoh. Is there an area of your life that God wants you to have a little more freedom? Right, for me, when you look at my story, when the spotlight shined in, right, it's this posture of money and who will provide for me. Vulnerability. And will I allow God and others in? Will I let people accept me? The thing is, right, we come into this place. We're a part of Jesus' kingdom, and he wants us. He wants us to be more free. He wants us to experience a greater and more robust experience of his presence, of worship, and a sense of freedom among his people. Right? God wants to transform us as we lock this long journey so that we get to the end and we look back and we say, God, you have been so good. God, we worship you on the other side of the Red Sea, looking back and saying, God, you are amazing. Look what you have done in my life. Don't you want that story? Don't you want that experience of worship on the other side of the sea where you're like, God, thank you. Look at my selfishness and how you have transformed me. Look at my greed, my lust, my insecurity, my anxiety. Look how you, God, have set me free. Hallelujah. I think we come into this place because we want that. And yet, sometimes in the journey, we think we're set free when in fact, we are still enslaved. I was going to challenge you to do one thing this week. It'd be this. Three parts. Part one. What is the one area of your life that God wants you to experience greater freedom? What is it? In worship today, think about it. This week, take some time. Go for a walk. Think about it. What is the one area that God wants you to experience more freedom? Part two. What is your first step on that journey? Right, for me, with money, I treated buddies to dollar pizza. Right, in the journey of vulnerability, what did I do? I showed up and was super rude at a group. That was my first step. What is your first step? Don't tell me what you're going to be like in 10 years. What is the first step you will do to walk that journey of faithfulness? Three. I just want you to tell someone what is the area of struggle that you want greater freedom what is your first step and three tell someone those two things that'll make it real as we enter worship I want to invite the worship team up I just want to invite us to turn to God but what we see in this story it is God's faithful love right his steadfast love that guides the Israelites on this journey. It is God's strength, not the strength of the Israelites, that guides them on this journey. How does God want to set you increasingly free today so you're not living in the slavery of the past, but you are increasingly 
heart aligned, kingdom aligned, mission aligned with Jesus. God wants us to experience his presence. And he wants us to be a people of worship. As we sing now, I just invite you to sing wherever you are at in that journey. Right? Worship and song are not just the end result. They are also what help us along the way to remind us of who God is as we are on the journey and at the end of it when we turn back and thank him. God, we thank you for this story in this text. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we ask in worship that you would shine the light on that area of our life. God, that you want us to experience greater freedom. Maybe ways in which we are still trapped, enslaved by other narratives, patterns of sin, addictions, attachments. God, God begin the process of breaking us free. God, you are a good, good father. You are the one who will walk with us every step of the way. May your mercy and your grace and your kindness fall afresh on us this week that we might worship you with all of who we are. Let's stand and sing to our King and our God and our Savior.